1: welcome everyone for joining us on this beautiful uh april morning and my name is val petrava i'm the outreach coordinator for the ellison center and i wanted to uh bring your attention to the flyers that are in the middle of the table there those are uh lists of events that we have coming up uh kiki's talk actually is culminating a pretty busy week but we have um two more events listed there there's one on april 27th i believe that is also a book talk and um, there is also our Recast Northwest Annual Conference taking place May 2nd at the Simpson Center. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's going to be another Saturday event, but it's a full day of uh, conference presentations. So if any of you are interested, uh, we would love to have you. So I'm going to turn this over to Eliana Marin, who uh, teaches at the uh, Comparative History of Ideas uh, program here, but um, I will let her introduce
0: Kiki. Yeah, um, it's my pleasure and uh, great honor to introduce Kiki um uh, today with an interdisciplinary education in Asian studies, as she just mentioned, political science and uh, library science. Kiki um, culminated her education with a PhD uh, in history at the University of Bucharest. She has demonstrated that creativity is welcome in all fields, fields as diverse as administration, academic administration, academia, research, and diplomacy. She worked for prestigious universities, among which University of Wisconsin, uh, University of California, San Diego, and Berkeley. Between 1980 and 2002, she served as a foreign service um, uh, a diplomat officer in Nigeria, Romania, Greece, Sierra Leone, uh, Tanzania, and India. Kiki is uh, the recipient of several American and international awards, and I will mention only to those that came from Romania. <laughs> So uh, from the Romanian Ministry of Justice, uh, she got an award uh, recognizing her uh, work uh, and dedication to education. And from the Romanian Ministry of Culture, she was appreciated for her uh, museum work. In 2007, she was the leader of the provincial reconstruction team responsible for the development of government structure, economy, and general reconstruction in Dayala, Iraq. She is also a successful columnist. Uh, she has been published um, in the Washington Post, uh, Times of India, and other newspapers. One amazing thing about her is the fact that after she retired, she completed her PhD in 19th century history. So that, for me, was inspiration, truly. I mean, you had the (laughs) time, you had the resources, and you do more learning, (laughs) more studying. Uh, Drawn from her doctoral research, her article, Occident, Not Orient, Visual Perceptions of Romania in 19th century Europe, was published in a very prestigious volume titled Imagining histories. Um, this may be just a wild speculation that studying history opened the door to writing fiction. I don't know, you'll tell us more about that. <laughs> Whispering Bucharest may be read as a historical novel um, reconstructing the political, social, and cultural scene of uh, the last years of communism in Romania. Please join me in welcoming uh, Kiki Munshi, who will share with us her experience as a novelist and uh, diplomat.
2: <laughs> After that uh, wonderful introduction, I think I should just say thank you very much and leave. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I, writing a novel has been something I'd wanted to do for a long time. When I was in Bucharest, I thought of a plot, but I had no title. And when I was in Greece, I thought of a title, The Electric Bouzouki, mm-hmm. which seemed to me to, to illustrate some of the tensions between modernity and ancient Greece, uh, but I had no story. And in Sierra Leone, I have a theme that I'm not going to follow up. You actually have a Professor of African history, Clark Speed, African politics, I believe, here, who studied the subject that engaged all of us in Sierra Leone, which was witchcraft and evil. But who wants to spend a year or two thinking about evil? Um, in any case, have all has has have all of you had a chance to read the book? No. Okay. I
0: will. You will,
2: okay, so it's a little, okay, then I will tailor things a little bit to the fact that you have, uh, uh, most of you have it. You know, I've got two horses, I'm from Southern California and I have two horses there. And they're both from Romania. One is named Hidalgo and the other is named Hajduk. And Hajduk is kind of a Mr. and Mrs. Middle America automatic transmission car of a horse. You ask Hajduk to do something, and he does it. He canter on the right lead, canter on the right lead. Do a shoulder in, do a shoulder in. Stop, he does that very happily. Hidalgo is the opposite, more of a sports car. He's a red sports car, perhaps, he's a red horse, with a mind of its own. He is, of course, bine invatsat, as they say in Romania. He's well-trained, as long as he thinks you're on the right track. Uh, Zia knows Hidalgo well because Hidalgo puts up with her, because she just automatically says, "I know you're the boss and I'm not." Um, sometimes, though, Hidalgo will kind of go back and say something like, "Hey, up there, you don't know what you're doing," and furthermore, <coughs> "Haven't you put on a little weight lately?" Um, then we have a discussion. It's embarrassing who has a horse who win- to have a horse who usually wins the arguments. Now, when I began writing a book, I thought that it would be like writing Hajduk. I thought of the plot, I thought of the characters, I had an outline. But as time passed, I realized it was I was really writing Hidalgo. Uh, the book develops a mind of its own. The characters' lives are theirs. They often grow up to be something that you don't know they're going to be things that I hadn't envisioned. They encountered situations I never dreamed of until the story itself produced them. Things just just happen. So I take only partial responsibility for this book. (laughs) (laughs) If you like it, thank me, and if you don't, we'll blame Hidalgo. (laughs) Um, There is something else I need to say about how this book was written. I'm a historian and a diplomat. I'm not a literature person. I tell a story, I don't write literature, and though I do revise what I write, it's with an eye to making it more readable and getting the story across. It's not to play with language or make like James Joyce. And um, how, did I, how did I dare write a novel, not just from the point of view of a Romanian, who is the protagonist in the novel, but from a man's point of view, um, well, the initial idea for the life of the story came from her godfather, a man named George Montean, uh, who was born in the village of Bilca in Bukovina. Now, are you you're all familiar with the geography of Romania, and you know that Bukovina is at the very north. Um, Bilca was cut in two by Molotov, and again, if you're historians, you remember the incident. But at the beginning of World War II, in June of 1940, Molotov called the Romanians to his office, and they'd expected that Russia at that point was going to take Bessarabia, which is, which is now Moldova, um, because it's been disputed between the two countries for centuries. Uh, but they had not expected him to take a pencil and to draw a line that included northern Bukovina, which is now southern Ukraine as well, cutting a historically unified area of Romania just straight in two. Um, Think about it too, it was a pencil. Think about the kind of mark a pencil makes on the paper. Then think of taking that map and trying to figure out where the line was in reality. In fact, in Bilka, Georgia's village, They had the line, it was cut in two. The northern part, which was actually mostly the forest and grazing but some families, uh, was in Russia. The families that were there were deported to uh, Siberia and most of them never heard from again. The the part to the south and George's house, and in this case Fane's house, was really only about a mile from the actual border. But then the Russians came with a map, and this pencil line, this was in, at the end of World War II, and said, you know, the line isn't here, it's that away, way south of the little river. And the mayor argued with him, and he, he managed to, to keep the line as it was, but it was like that all through. It was, it was a total mess. Happily, George was on the Romanian side, and he grew up and he frequented the American Library, of which I was the director in the 1980s, and along with his wife became people we diplomats knew as, I suppose, as well as anyone could know a Romanian in those days of the 1980s, and the bad old days of communism. But as we met and we talked, I always wondered about the complications of a life lived with the losses of Russian occupation, because the Russian occupation was, was, was really bad. Uh, And the ensuing problems of the communist system and its weight on the people and the lack of freedom. But also, that was on the one hand. On the other hand, George wasn't a poor peasant, in fact. But there were poor peasants who were able to go to high school, and even George might not have been able to, who were able to go to high school and then to the university because of communism, because of a system that said, we will take the people who are able. No matter what their social origins, and will push them forward. For all of that, the story is not about George Montaigne. It's about somebody else who only exists in our imaginations, because as the years went by, exploring the tension I saw in George receded into the background. I think possibly because I'm not terribly reflective myself and don't have a lot of angst about things. I that became although it was an idea, it became less important as time went on, than another point of departure um, which was entirely different. The As I visited Romania through the 90s, and I lived there from 2000 to 2002, uh, I heard two opposing views of Romanian history under communism. The first, usually... Taxi drivers, workers, less educated people were. It was much better under Ceausescu. Things were good then. We had jobs, we had a place to live, there weren't any problems. Well, no, I was there. It was horrible. Things were not better under Ceausescu. They were very bad. But on the other hand, there were the people, usually the intellectuals, who said, It was all bad, there was nothing good about communism, and I fought valiantly the whole time against it, and publicly. Yeah, right, sure. (laughs) Um, There's some truth in both, some loss of memory. It's dangerous to make categorical statements about any period of history or any country, We've learned through sad experience in many countries that communism does not work as an economic or a political system. And we can argue about that later if any of you disagrees with that statement. Uh, But 60 or 70 years ago we weren't so certain. I remember going to India in 1965 and seeing such poverty But I thought, well, maybe some kind of guided economy to try and help these people, who were literally dying of starvation in a famine at that time, would be a good thing. It's easy to see how even good-hearted, intelligent people might have embraced communism as a way to foster faster development in a poor country. And I would like to make the point that in the 1930s, Romania was, for many people, desperately poor. And there are a lot of Romanians who argue with me. Anka was the yeah. most recent, but the peasants were poor. There were no glass in the windows, no shoes, uh, only homemade shoes on the feet, often enough, not enough to eat through the winter. Most important, however, for each person who grew up under that system is that each person had his or her, her own life. And in, did you grow up in in Russia yeah, and Bulgaria? I was in I was in so there the were Soviet Union. in the Soviet Union. So there were good things that happened to you. It wasn't all bad. You, Not all bad. A bad. lot of bad, yes. But what about? You, you celebrate, you know, there was family, there was school, there were friends, there yes, were adventures, we, there were triumphs. We lived, we loved, you we loved, uh, yeah. We fell in love. We, yeah, uh, it we was. We to yeah. our kids, uh, and, uh, but uh, it was political pressure, it was political restriction, it was, yeah. uh, it, it was not uh, freedom. I have. not freely uh, uh, make a trip to Bulgaria. We, we, we know that. We, we do know that. But I have a friend, Sandra Bradiciano, who at one point said, you know, I had a good, it was my life. It wasn't a bad life. It was a good life. It may be a bad system, but it was my life and I don't regret my life. So you had that kind of tension. Um, and there were days in, in Romania and days in Russia and in Bulgaria when the sun did shine. It didn't rain all the time. I wish it would rain more in California, but that's another thing. (laughs) And there are still days when it's cold and gloomy and it rains, and there were a lot of them this last winter. So in this way, this novel became an effort to bridge the gap between two opposing views of the world to show that communist Romania and communist Romanians were not all bad, were not all miserable. But at the same time, to try to be honest about the problems that really did exist. And along the way, as along the forest path in California that Hidalgo prefers to go on, and to help people enjoy and appreciate the beauty that surrounds them in that lovely country. And to recognize the feeling that many of us have for Romania. So thank you. I think it's easier now to discuss than to for me to continue talking.